Welcome to our podcast. This is Hypochondriac's Almanac, and we are stoked to be here recording in, on this lovely Wednesday evening. I'm Sarah, and this is Katrina. Say hi, Katrina. Hi. Um, this is the podcast for all of us that obsessively check WebMD and secretly think we have a new disease every time we have a sniffle, or a little twinge, or some pain, or a headache. We understand, we identify, we're here to talk weird diseases, strange illnesses, crazy syndromes, and bizarre disorders. Right, Katrina? Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, before we get started, folks, we do need to give you a little bit of a medical disclaimer, uh, because we will be talking about medical conditions. The information in this podcast is not intended to treat, diagnose, or otherwise help people with any diseases, syndromes, symptoms, anything like that. We are not doctors or medical professionals. Nothing we say is intended to help you with a medical condition. We just want to talk about the world of crazy medicine and all that's happening in the past, present, and the future. If you have a medical problem, and we cannot emphasize this enough, see a doctor. They can diagnose you. Don't mess around with it. Just go see a doctor. Okay. Right, Katrina? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Before we dive into today's topics, we're going to talk about something new in the news. This is our little segment we call Anything New in the News. And I found an interesting article in Life Science at lifescience.com, which I thought was kind of weird. Um, it's by Rafi Letzer, and, and it is called... Giant fatberg of grease and baby wipes jams the British sewer. So, evidently, a 210-foot-long monster made from grease and used baby wipes has clogged up a sewer in Sidmouth in southwestern England. British officials say in a statement that they expect removing the gooey blob will happen in exceptionally challenging work conditions, which could take up to eight weeks. Fatbergs like this one have become unpleasantly familiar in the United Kingdom. As Life Science reported back in 2017, workers used high-pressure water jets to slowly break down the 820-foot-long, 143-ton rancid blob that formed in a London sewer. Evidently, that mass was converted to biofuel, but it took workers months to fully restore function in the affected area. Pretty cool, yeah. huh? Not. <laughs> A fatberg. Did you have any idea a fatberg was even a thing? You know, the only reason why I know about it is because I watched a show that had a fatberg in it, so. That's gross. That's just unbelievably gross. Can you imagine trying to, like, deal with a fatberg and what you would have to try to do to break down something that weighs... Uh, 443 tons, and it's 820 feet long. Yeah, you think about those workers. It's disgusting. Like, going in and having to, like, get in there and unclog that. That's disgusting. That's like a biohazard. They probably had well, to be full-on equipped for a biohazard. Well, that's what I was thinking. They probably had to, um, use chemicals or something. But, um, essentially they used a high... As the article said... They used a high-pressure water jet to slowly break down the rancid blob. And they converted, it to they converted it to biofuel, though, right? Well, that's, well, at least it's useful. Right? They recycled that shit. <laughs> Literally. Let's power some cars and some trains with that. Oh, my God. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. Let's at least make it useful, right? 
So, hey, before we jump into our very first podcast together, why don't you uh, give our listeners a little bit of background information about yourself, Miss Katrina? Um, that's a no. I'm just kidding. (laughs) And cut. (laughs) We're done for the day. (laughs) Um, Before we do that, though, Katrina and I are sisters. I'm the older sister. She's the younger sister. So this is a family act. But uh, Katrina, take it. Oh, yeah. Sarah actually practically uh, raised me. And it's a huge reason why education is important to me because she went to school. And nobody else in our family really did. But Well, until later. She, well, yeah. But that's the reason why, to me, education is so important to me because we're hella competitive and I need to be yeah. better. So. Well, obviously this podcast is about medical issues, diseases, symptoms, uh, syndromes, medical, both medical and psychological issues are things that we're going to be addressing on this particular show. So what is it about your background that qualifies you to speak to some of these topics? Because I believe that you are well qualified to talk about this. Uh, Because I'm a total hypochondriac. Well, first of all, you're a hypochondriac. But second of all, you do have a lot of medical experience, right? Right. I worked in the medical field for several years. Um, several. So, like, several. <laughs> dozens. <laughs> well, I really don't want to give away my age. No. I don't want people to know how old I am. So, basically, I'm 29 and you're 24. We'll just leave it at that. Right. We're in our 20s. But Katrina has been in the medical field for a significant amount of time. She has a lot of experience with some really weird stuff. She worked mm-hmm. in an ER, right? Yeah, I worked in the ER for seven years. So she's seen some really crazy stuff. As a stuff. financial counselor. And she is also... Yes, I haven't treated people, but I've seen it. But she's also a nursing student right now. Congrats on that. Yay, it's so hard. I know, but it's like you really have to have the strength and fortitude and intelligence. And I'm really proud of you for getting off your keister and getting that started. It's a two-year program, right? The program itself, yes. The prereqs. With the prereqs, it's about three and a half years. But she's been talking about this for a while, and she's finally taking the step to gain a little bit more independence and to just really make a way for herself and her kids. So props to you for that, Katrina. Thank you, thank you. Um, tell us a little bit about your family. Uh, I have some... <laughs> Some weird How many family. Kids? <laughs> you have kids, right? Tell the audience. Nope. I have four million kids, it feels like. Um, no, I have four children. Um, I graduated from high school with my oldest. Uh, and then uh, I have three more. And they are um, quite the handful. So but, um, I know that you also have a little bit of experience with um, special needs kids. So that is going to be something that we're going to be talking about a little bit on this show because you do have that experience with sort of, what is it, borderline autism? Or what would you call that? Well, I wouldn't, we haven't gotten any uh, official diagnosis, so we don't know exactly what it is. But the official diagnosis that we got was sensory processing disorder with a mixed speech disorder and quirky um, behaviors. I think that they actually put that in the notes. Wow. It's crazy. Like, how many different changes 
that parents have experienced through the years. And that kind of interestingly enough leads me into some of the topics um, that I'm going to go over a little bit today. My first topic that I've chosen to talk about is something called a glass delusion. And it is a syndrome, more of a mental disorder than a physical um, body disease or something like that. But uh, essentially, the Wikipedia website explains that a glass delusion is an external manifestation of a psychiatric disorder recorded in Europe mainly in the late Middle Ages and early modern period. So basically the 15th to the 17th centuries. During that time, people feared that they were made of glass and therefore were likely to shatter into pieces. One famous early sufferer was King Charles of France, who refused to allow people to touch him and wore reinforced clothing to protect himself from accidental shattering. I saw some information about this a few years back and was just like riveted and fascinated by it. How one would even get to the place where they would start to think like that. But there was another really interesting article that I found in on Gizmodo, the website, it's called The Glass Delusion Was the Most Popular Madness of the Middle Ages. Oh. And here it goes. Do mental illnesses have certain eras? When we look at history, it seems like they do. There was the famous dancing sickness that struck medieval Europe, and then there was a strange delusion, first experienced by a king, in which the sufferer thought they were made of glass. Um, and this was a French king. And then increasingly over the next few years, the king went into strange spells. He would rage at the people around him, grow paranoid and fearful, have to be restrained during the fits. During these spells that could last for days or months, he would stop caring about personal grooming to the point where his servants eventually had to cut him out of his clothes. Although he treated his brother well, you know, gross, huh? Um, there was a regent appointed during the king's time of illness um, to take care of him. Um, so essentially, this was a mentally ill person anyway. And so he eventually began to exhibit the symptoms where he thought he was going to shatter if he moved wrong. So this was not specific to the king, though. Um, it was oddly specific to the 15th through the 17th century, the article says. For about 200 years, people around Europe suffered from the delusion that they were made out of glass and they would shatter if they moved incorrectly. Um, so this was considered, so right? It's so bizarre. And it was considered a royal disease uh, because more aristocratic people had it than the general populace. But it gained popularity and became more and more common until the 1600s when it turned into a genuine cultural phenomenon. The many cases of the illness were noted in books from the anatomy of melancholy, but it became part of a popular culture as well. So they, um, some famous... Authors wrote about it in Don Quixote, um, the disorder called the Glass Lawyer in that particular book. Um, but then it stopped all of a sudden. Um, while there are occasional people who have delusions in which they are objects made of glass, there's no longer a real glass delusion. Or perhaps there really never was. Certainly plenty of very smart people documented it, and it stayed around for over 200 years. But how can a mental disorder simply vanish? Have people changed? Has the era changed? Or is it the way we express our illnesses? So I find this just super fascinating that someone would pick something like that <laughs> to be mentally ill about. But I guess one doesn't really have a choice with when it comes to mental illness, right? I found it interesting that when you were just 
describing that it comes from certain eras. Like, you don't see that anymore. That is really interesting to me. It's a mental disorder. You'd think that it would vary more, but if it's coming from... And now you don't see it anymore? That is so strange. Right. No, I just, I've always been kind of interested in that. I've, I've sort of heard little bits and pieces of that particular story through the years. Um, and always been kind of interested in, in learning a little bit more about it. But because it's not a, an illness that's experienced in modern times, there's really not a lot of, like, it doesn't really discuss what the symptoms were, how they treated it, you know, did the person die because of it? So there wasn't a lot of background information about that particular syndrome. But it's interesting well, nonetheless. so different then. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And medically speaking, the way they treated things was so different. Yeah. And... I mean, were they even aware of mental disorders in that time? I really um, find it medical uh, practice in that time period and, and dealing with people of um, that had mental illnesses was very, very different than the way that we deal with that now. So I find it fascinating to look back in some of the, the, the books and, and articles that talk about that time period and, and early history. Well, then my next thought went to, um, because he's a king, what kind of things was he exposed to that caused trauma to him that might cause mental disorders? Well, and how much of it was he allowed to get away with as quirky behavior and being a total shit because he was royalty, you know? Right. Well, yeah, that too. I mean, how, how much of his and surroundings were because of so much environment how much of his environment it was well then because of so much inbreeding too within a lot of those royal families there was a lot of crazy stuff going on as far as um, genetic disorders and things that were passed down because the inbreeding messed up their genes but interestingly enough that was my choice for the first article um what about you what can you um what's your article that you picked out for the day your topic for discussion uh my article is about progeria which is, uh, it's, have you seen the movie Benjamin Button? Yes. It's premature aging, and the uh, majority of the cases only look to, like, the age of 13. So there's age super, it's, super fast. Yeah. It's, uh, it's also called Hutchinson-Gilford progeria syndrome otherwise known as progeria, is a rare and fatal genetic condition. Another progeria syndrome is Werner syndrome, otherwise known as adult progeria. It's just another form of the same thing, but it happens later on in life, in the late teens, and suffers of that expectancy into their 40s and 50s. So they're, they're more likely to live longer. That's interesting. Uh, I didn't know that you could have late-onset progeria. Like, when does it typically start if they do get it later in life? Around two. So, this article says, Progeria causes accelerated aging with sufferers commonly displaying ailments associated with old age. Uh, the Progeria Foundation says children with progeria begin to display many characteristics of accelerated aging, aging within the first two years of life. Right, but there was, you said there was a later one. that They could come, they could have it later right. in life. Yeah. It happens in your teens. Okay, interesting. But this you can type does not manifest itself into the late teen years. Okay, but you can live longer if you get the one right that manifests in the teen years. Yeah. Um, progeria signs include growth, failure, body fat, and hair, age, aged-looking skin, stiff. 
stiffness of joints, hip dislocation, generalized atherosclerosis, uh, which is hardening of the arteries, cardiovascular disease, and stroke. What? I was just kidding. The children have a remarkably similar appearance despite differing ethnic backgrounds. Children with progeria die of atherosclerosis, heart disease, at an average age of 14 years old. Wow, that's sad. It is really sad. People with progeria often have small, frail frames compared to their heads and have a distinctive appearance of a shallow jaw and pinched nose. They also suffer fully full-body alopecia, where they have no hair. Often the physical appearance caused by their condition becomes more pronounced as they get older. Despite their physical problems, it is thought that they retain all their mental faculties, unlike some elderly people who can develop dementia and associated conditions as they age. So they keep their mental facilities. That doesn't seem to age. It's just physical body. So they're trapped in their body. Basically. Correct. Um, uh-huh. Where did you get this information from? What, what was the, the source? The sun. And is there a treatment? There is no known cure for this, but there is treatment for the heart disease. They can do surgery on the heart to, um, they can do a coronary bypass surgery for the heart because the main thing that goes first is their heart and that's what most of them die from so they can give them some surgery to prolong their life Mm -hmm. Um, there is a famous youtuber her name is Adalia Rose and she's 11 years old and um, she is a I watched uh, videos on her and she is so sassy and spunky and it really makes you just your heart really goes out yeah She's so, she's got such a fun personality and you just want to love on her. There's so many shows now where they talk about this particular disease and, and highlight the lives of some of the kids in them because they end up being so short. Which is totally unfortunate. Yeah. Very sad. Anything else you want to add on that? No, no, that that is it for that one. It sounds like an awful thing to happen, but what, do you know what percentage of the population has that and is born with yeah that? it's let me go back you it is it's one in four million births okay um to be rare. we're gonna jump right along into the next article um my next topic is alien hand syndrome alien hand syndrome yeah <laughs> and it's a rare okay. um neurological condition that causes one hand to act on its own free will. Sometimes one leg is affected, though it isn't as common. And I got this article from Healthline.com. Alien hand syndrome, the hand user isn't under control of the mind, the hand, excuse me, isn't under control of the mind and moves as though it has its own mind. The affected hand uh, feels foreign to its owner during these episodes and seems to move deliberately to carry out tasks that are unintentional. While it can affect children, usually alien hand occurs in adults. It's sometimes referred to as Dr. Strangelove Syndrome. Strangelovian <laughs> hand or anarchic hand. So it's usually caused by a couple of different things. Um, some people experience it after a stroke, trauma, or tumor. It can also be associated with cancer, neurogenitive diseases, and brain aneurysms. 
Um, it is also linked to brain surgeries that separate the two hemispheres of the brain. Um, it's very interesting. Um, I think I watched a movie where somebody had alien hand way back in the day. It was some crazy movie. Um, brain scans show that people with alien hand syndrome have isolated activities in the contralateral primary motor area. This is thought yeah. to be due to lesions or damage in the parental cortex or per parietal. <laughs> I can't speak any English tonight. You know, a lot of these medical terminology words are really hard to pronounce. Oh, they are. So I'm sure that we're going to mispronounce a whole ton of them, and people are going to be like, that's not how you do that. But you know what? We don't care. <laughs> we're not here to diagnose or treat you. We're just here to talk about weird and interesting stuff. So the most prominent symptoms of alien hand syndrome is the inability to control the hand as it acts independently. The affected hand may move involuntarily and perform goal-directed tasks and actions. It's said to move without cognitive control or awareness, as though it's being controlled by someone else and has a mind of its own. That's creepy. So there's some treatments for this particular thing, but it's weird because it says the hand may touch your face, button a shirt, or pick up an object, sometimes repeatedly or compulsively. It can also levitate on its own. The hand may also engage in self-oppositional actions such as closing a drawer that the other hand just opened or unbuttoning a shirt that you've just buttoned. Alien hand is uncooperative and may perform incorrect actions or fail to follow commands. <laughs> so oh my maybe, gosh, I, that's kind of creepy. It's right? Just, the hand is like possessed. Seriously. So people with alien hand syndrome... Um, can get a diagnosis from the doctor through observation and evaluation. Diagnosing this particular syndrome is difficult, though, because it's a neurological disorder that lacks a psychiatric component. This makes it difficult to diagnose because behavioral issues are more common than alien hand syndrome. So symptoms can sometimes be attributed to a psychiatric disorder, which may be frustrating to the person affected. So there really is no cure for this particular syndrome, but they have uh, therapies and pharmacologic options that people can take to try to reduce the symptoms for this, um, as in muscle control therapies and some, they can actually use Botox as a, neuro a neuromuscular blocking agent, which is interesting. Botox to cure alien hand. Who knew? <laughs> well, yeah, off-shelf off treatments for things like Botox. Botox can treat anything, evidently, now. <laughs> I've seen lots of, lots of different things for Botox. But this particular syndrome was first recorded in 1909. It usually affects left or non-dominant hand. Some people actually name their alien hand. Does it come and go? Like, is it like... All the time, their their hand. It does. sounds like it kind of comes and goes, but I'm sure there are people that have it all the time too. Um, it doesn't really say in these articles, but they said there's no cure, but most people can manage their symptoms to some degree. It's very interesting. Can you imagine how unsettling that would be to wake up and it's like your hand is just doing its own thing? I mean, that would creep me out. I'd be like calling the priest, be like, uh. Can you come do an exorcism on my body? Can <laughs> you please do an exorcist on my alien hand? Right? Like, Katrina, <laughs> put your alien hand down! <laughs> Get your alien hand away from me. Alien hand made me do it. <laughs> Totes! I didn't do what the no. alien hand did. That's why I'm so thick. I think I have an alien... It's my alien hand put the chocolate in my mouth. I think I have an alien stomach. It just 
does what it wants to, and like mouth. <laughs> not under my control. Oh no! <laughs> All right, so Katrina, what is your next topic for discussion tonight? So this one has always fascinated me. It's uh, water allergy, also hey. known as aquagenic urticaria. I probably pronounced that incorrectly, but I'm sure I'm somewhere close to this. Just do it. It's a it's rarely diagnosed form of physical urticaria. Urticaria is you know, like hives. Okay. The defining symptom is an itchy skin reaction resulting from contact with water, regardless regardless of its temperature. Okay. It is sometimes described as an as an allergy, although it is not a true histamine releasing allergic reaction like other forms of urticaria. This seems to not be affected by different temperatures of water, such as cold or hot, or chemicals such as fluorine and chlorine, since it is reproduced with distilled water and medical saline. So it's water itself, it's not the, the specific components or minerals or additives that might be in the water. Well, if you read into the article, it does dis- it does talk about uh, the possibility of minerals or something in the water that is causing it, but they haven't been able to really pinpoint it, it, it because it's so tricky. Okay. Tell us a little bit more. Lose my, got me sidetracked. The exact underlying cause of aquagenetic urticaria is poorly understood. The main scientific ideas about the cause are that the person is reacting to tiny amounts of an unknown substance dissolved in the water, or that the water interacts with or combines with an unknown substance present in or on the skin, and that the person's immune system is reacting to this compound. Despite the common name water allergy, this condition cannot be a true allergy to water, especially given that the body is largely composed of water. Okay. So most of the patients, what happens, it's not, from what I've read and understood, it has, like, when their skin touches the water and not when they're drinking water. So, like, Hmm. when they're taking a shower or a bath or something, that's when their body reacts. And so these, uh, these people with these conditions have to, like, limit their exposure to water. How do they get clean? Well, that's the thing. They have to, like, take oral antihistamines, topical corticosteroid creams. Um, they must be smelly. Oh, they also do that would suck. phototherapy. Hmm? They must be really smelly. That would suck. Yeah, that would be really tricky. I, I would really struggle with that because I like my showers. Baths for me, man. I'd be, that would not be fun. And is it, so the treatment is basically, there is no cure for it. There's just things to control the symptoms. Correct. Correct. What else you got? Any other information about this particular illness? Does it strike in a certain age group or is it, what period in life does it typically have an onset in? Well, it, it can strike anybody at any age. So age is not a factor. So people are not typically born with it? I, it doesn't say in this article. I'm looking on the Wikipedia website. Okay. 
Um, and it doesn't say anything about age. There's no factor. It doesn't. It doesn't say any. There's not a lot of additional information on the Wikipedia right. website. I, it says male. It says males are less often affected. So it's usually women. Males. It's more of a female. Although, how much is that a man? I don't know about you, but I know men are less likely to go to the doctors than females. So how much of that is playing into that equation? Yeah, that could definitely be part of the equation here for sure. But if diagnosis of aquagenetic urticaria will begin with an evaluation of the patient's clinical history, looking for any signs of what might be causing the severe reaction. So they they try to like single out what it could be and make sure it's not something else first. Right. The patient will then panel of then, tests, right? Right. Well, because the patient will then be put to a water treatment test, where water will be applied to the upper body for thirty minutes. Water may be placed directly on the skin or soaked paper towel may be applied. In many cases, distilled water, tap water, and saline will be used to check for difference in reaction. After this is removed, the skin will be checked for reaction for the next 10 to 15 minutes because aquagenetic urticaria frequently accompanies other types of physical urticaria. The doctor may perform tests to check for these other conditions. An ice cube may be placed on the forearm for a few minutes to check for cold urticaria, which is just an allergy to cold. Wow. So it sounds like it's a, a really extensive process, so they probably try to rule out other things first just because it looks like it's really time-consuming right. to figure out, to diagnose it. And it's pretty, it looks like it's pretty rare. And itchy high, it's itchy highs on contact with water mostly present for the first time during puberty in females, more likely in your teen years. Mm. So that makes me wonder if it's more of like uh, related to hormones. It could be. I mean, that's it's kind of a crazy thing. You just, you don't know what those sorts of things, what could potentially cause it and how much of it's a mental ill mental illness maybe because your brain and your mind is a really really powerful thing right right yep so okay um that is it for today's show is there anything that you would like to add before we do our outro no i think we covered it all okay so we Love emails. If you guys have any questions, suggestions, anything else you would like to add, corrections to stuff that we've said, we'd be more than happy to take your corrections. Um, you can contact us at hypochondriacpodcast at gmail.com. That's H-Y-P-O-C-H-O-N-D-R-I-A-C podcast at gmail.com. This is where we say goodbye, folks. So long, farewell. Please rate, review, and subscribe. Also, if you have any suggestions, comments, or complaints, keep them to yourself. No, just kidding. Email us. <laughs> please, please email us and join us again next week when we'll talk more about strange medical news, conditions, and treatments. Good night, podcast peeps. Stay healthy, keep it real, and always live your best life.
Bye. Bye.